pray and ask for God's help as we do this. Our Lord in heaven, you are good, always good. You never stop being good, utterly faithful, as we have just been singing. And so we pray to God that as, as we now in these moments consider this this episode in the history of your people, as we look at this passage of scripture, we pray, God, that you would show your goodness to us. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to be faithful to us. And as we look at your word, would you speak and bring life that we might know you better and know how you want us to live in the world. Amen. Well, this morning we have a love story. Uh, Abraham goes to seek a wife for his son Isaac and uh, we read half the chapter. Is that not working? Oh, golly. I mean, this is the worst day ever. <laughs> you hate that one. We need a special dispensation of grace in these moments. I've never worn one of these before. Oh, I can tell. I did. It's really good. It's really Brittany is on great. Hit me, baby, one more time. <laughs> okay, is that working? Is everyone happy? Does anyone hear me? Is that, is that working? Is that working? Yeah. yeah. Great, brilliant. So, uh, where were we? So, we, we've looked at the whole of the chapter. We, we read half of it earlier. We left off the story um, with Abraham's servant meeting Rebecca. What happened next is Rebecca's brother Laban comes onto the scene, very impressed by how rich this servant seems to be, and invites him to stay in their home. Uh, the servant goes, he's really keen to tell them why he's there, and he recounts the whole episode, uh, right from Abraham sending him, the prayer he prayed, the test, how Rebecca passed the test with flying colours, and that Abraham is seeking a wife for his son from his relatives, and the Lord has sent his servant to the very closest of relatives. Uh, Laban hears all of this and he responds, saying, this is clearly from the Lord, so she should go and marry Isaac. Now the next day the servant makes the leave, but Laban and the family put the brakes on a bit. They say, hold on, hold on, wait up a little bit. Why not let her stay for a while? In verse 55, it says, why not let her stay 10 days or so? It's an ambiguous phrase. They're just saying, come on, it's an undefined length of time. Let's not rush, but let's just see how things go. And the servant objects, and so they say, well, let's ask Rebecca. Let her decide. Verse 58, they say to Rebecca, will you go with this man? And the whole adventure hangs on that question, and we hold our breath to see what she's going to say. And what does she say? I will go. And so verse, verse 59. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. And then Rebecca and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer the High Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah, 
So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Notice when Rebecca and Isaac met. Isaac looked up and he saw her coming. Then Rebecca in parallel looked up. And their eyes met over the dusty fields. Um, and literally it says, Rebecca fell off her camel at that point. Um, and she immediately prepares herself for the wedding. Isaac loved her, he says. It's a love story with a happy ending. But there isn't an appeal to a love story. We might not all like all the sentiment that often goes with it, but, but a love story, a good love story, grips us deep inside. All of us want to be part of a love story, and Genesis 24 is a love story. But it's not really the love story of Isaac and Rebecca. There's another love story going on, and it's a much better one. But first of all, we have to see it's a death story. It's a death story. And we have followed the life of Abraham since he first emerged onto the scene at the end of chapter 11. Uh, Genesis 24 gives us the last recorded words of Abraham. He is very old. Uh, when we get to chapter 25, it will give a kind of summary of his death, but we don't get the story of his death. So in Genesis 24, we find Abraham very old, sending his servant on this mission. The servant maybe would have been gone for a couple of years. And when the servant comes back, did you notice who is not there? Who is absent at the end of the story? Rebecca uh, says, who's this man coming from the field? And the servant says, that is my master, not Abraham. Not Abraham. The implication is that Abraham has died when the servant was away. So what is Abraham's focus at the end of his life? Now look at verse 1. Abraham was now very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. Chapter 12. When the Lord first spoke to Abraham, the Lord said, I will bless you. And then at the very end, we are told, the Lord has done exactly what he said. The Lord has been faithful. He said, I will bless you. And at the end of Abraham's life, the Lord has blessed him in every way. God is faithful. And in many ways, that is the great theme of this adventure in chapter 24. The Lord is faithful. He does what he says. As Abraham's last significant action, he sends his servant on this mission to get a wife for Isaac. And he's very clear on the stipulations, two very clear stipulations. Uh, she must not be a wife from the Canaanites, the people of the land where they live. And Isaac must not leave the land where they live. He must not go back to where Abraham comes from. He must stay. See, what is happening at the beginning of this chapter is that Abraham is saying, he is saying, God really loves me. God really loves me. And we've followed Abraham's journey under the great promise in chapter 12. And the promise when God said to Abraham, I will bless you. I will make you into a great nation. I will give you a place to live. It will be the land of Canaan. And then through you, Abraham, through your family, I am going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And God repeated and confirmed this promise at different stages on the, in Abraham's life. And Abraham was... Well, we've seen that he's, he's wrestled with the promise. Sometimes he believed it, sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he stood tall on it, sometimes he fell flat. But as he comes to the end, he is still wrestling with the promise. As he comes to the end, Abraham is pondering the promise. The promise says, Abraham's descendants are going to grow great in number. 
They're going to come into a great nation. And Abraham thinks on the promise. He ponders it and he concludes, well, if my, my descendants are going to become a great nation, then therefore my son, the son of the promise, is going to need a wife. Now, there are plenty of women in Canaan for Isaac to marry. Um, in fact, if, if Abraham's descendants are going to live in the land of Canaan, the most sensible thing would be for him to intermarry, for his family to intermarry with the Canaanites. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, but Abraham has learned that the promise cannot be forced. He's, he's tried that other times and it's gone badly wrong. Now the Lord told Abraham back in chapter 15 the Canaanites will lose the land because of their sin. It's still hundreds of years into the future, but that's where that's the future of the Canaanites. They will lose the land. And so Abraham's not going to squash the promise to fit what he can imagine. Instead he wrestles with it. You notice in verse 7 how he, he recites the promise. This is what God has said. This is the word of the Lord to me. To your offspring, I will give this land. So he ponders it, he reasons. To my offspring, the Lord's going to give this land. Therefore, when he sends his servant to get a wife, he says, the Lord is going to send his angel before you so you can get a wife for my son. But what Abraham's doing, he's saying, God has said it, and, and so therefore God must provide everything needed for it to happen. And I'm going to act on that basis. He doesn't manipulate the promise. He, he also doesn't presume upon the promise. Now, the servant isn't quite sure about it, and he says, well, what if the woman doesn't want to come? That's fairly reasonable, given the circumstances. Uh, Abraham doesn't doubt, doesn't seem to doubt at all that God's going to provide what's needed, but he says, well, if that's the case, I'm not going to push it. Just, just leave it. I'm not going to presume on it. Yeah, Abraham is saying, God really loves me. No, he's saying more than that, really. He's saying God really loves us. The promise for Abraham is for all the nations to be blessed through his family line. He's saying God really loves all the people to whom he plans to bring his blessing. God really loves us, and so therefore God is going to do everything that is needed to bring about everything that he has promised. It's like if you throw a ball off a really huge and high hill. Not a hill off a bridge, sorry. Hill wouldn't work. Off a bridge. You throw off a bridge. There's nothing underneath you. And once you have thrown the ball, it's going to keep going until it gets to the bottom, won't it? Gravity determines that. Once God has promised, that promise will keep going and going and going until it gets to its destination. So Abraham acts upon the promise he proceeds. It's a death story. Abraham is dying trusting the love of God. And so I guess it is really... A love story. So we'll call it a love story. We'll call it a love story. But, but what then is love? We, we love love, don't we? We like to talk about it and sing about it, but what is it? And maybe you remember 1981, it was a good year for people to be born. Also a good year to get engaged, well, not so much. So. Um, Charles and Diana got engaged and they had that infamous interview where the interviewer said, uh, I, I presume you're in love. And Diana says, Of course. And Charles, whatever in love means. Whatever it means. What does it mean? What does love mean? What is it? And this story is concerned with a special kind of love. The servant travels the long journey to Aram and then pauses outside a city, rests his camels, and he prays. You see in verse 12 how he prays. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. 
Kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It's, it's the great Old Testament word for love. It's one of the greatest of all the love words in the Old Testament. It's often translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or loving faithfulness. But this love is God's unmoving commitment to bring about everything that he has promised. This is the love of God that is, is as stubborn as a mule. It's deep as an ocean. It's glorious as a sunset. It's a love which, which flows right out of the faithful heart of God. It's grounded in God's original creation intention to do good. And it pours out in a, a constant torrent upon his people. It's the love that Abraham dies trusting. The steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, never changes, never quits. So the servant prays, God, do what you have promised. Show that kind of love to Abraham. And then he gets practical in his prayer. He asks God to make clear who he's chosen to marry Isaac and ends his prayer in verse 14. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness, shown steadfast love to my master. Uh, the servant's idea is to ask a young lady for a drink of water. And if she says, sure, and then adds, I'll also get water for your camels, the servant will see that as a sign from the Lord. Now, this is an astonishing suggestion, really. Uh, this, this guy rocks up with these ten camels. They've been on a long journey. Each of these camels is going to drink like about 100 litres of water. And, and this girl has a, a jar. And the jars of those times would hold about 10 litres of water. But Rebecca, she is a whirlwind of eagerness. She's hurrying, she's rushing, quickly going up and down to the well, getting enough water for all of these camels. She's going to be making like a hundred trips. And to offer water for these camels is, is to go far beyond the most extravagant expression of hospitality. It's unexpected, so far unexpected, it will reveal that it must be the Lord who is controlling the situation. And that's exactly what the servant looks for. See in verse 21? pauses. Without saying a word, the man watched, probably for a long time, her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. He waits, he slows down. He is in a hurry, but he won't be hurried. The whole adventure, this whole adventure in this chapter is built on this expectation that God will be behind what happens, behind all the circumstances. And you see it, don't you, if you just stand back from the chapter. Why was it that Rebecca came out at this moment? Why was it that he approached Rebecca out of all the young women who were coming out to fill up their water jars? A bit later, when the servant goes to meet the family, it's a pagan family, that they are idol worshippers. How are they going to be persuaded to lose their daughter? Well, verse 50, Laban, the brother of Bethuel, the father, answered, this is from the Lord, that they agreed to follow the Lord's leading. And, and then they get cold feet, and suggest maybe Rebecca should stick around for a bit longer. But it's the Lord who puts it into Rebecca's heart to go. In fact, Rebecca looks a lot like Abraham at this point. Rebecca called to leave her family, called to leave her home, called to go to the land of promise. She follows the leading of the Lord. She trusts herself to the promise. So in all of this, the servant is ever mindful that the Lord is doing it. The Lord is involved. And so, so when Rebecca reveals that she is in fact a close relative, what does he do in verse 26? What's his response? The man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, 
Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness, his steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The servant praises the Lord for his love. Does it again in verse 52. It's, it's a reflex when he sees the Lord act. His reflex is to praise. This is a love story. Abraham ponders the promise and he says, you know what? God really loves us. He really loves us. God is resolutely committed to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham's family. So he reasons, therefore God will provide what is needed. And that wrestling with the promise, the pondering of the promise, drives all the other actions. Abraham acts on the basis of the promise. He proceeds on that basis. Sends his servant. His servant proceeds as he acts on the promise. Rebecca proceeds as she acts on the promise. And then the servant comes to pray as he prays for the steadfast love of the Lord. And then he pauses, waiting, watching for that love to be seen. And then he praises. When the prayer is answered, he praises God for showing his steadfast love. And when all that's going on, somewhere in the background, Abraham dies, trusting the promise that God really loves us. There is an appeal, a deep appeal, I think, to a love story. We all want to be part of a love story. What about this one? What about Genesis 24? Now, what is your life story? Is, is it a love story? It, it, is your life story a story of living in the love of God? And so when we look at Genesis 24, is there any way that it can be our story? And to answer that carefully, we need to look at the promise. The promise that is the basis of all of this and see is the promise for us. And, and see how the promise comes out in this chapter, because in this chapter, Abraham is getting a wife for Isaac because God has promised that Abraham's descendants and not the Canaanites will live in the land of Canaan. And it's, it's that part of the promise which is driving the adventure. So, so what's behind that part of the promise? Not the Canaanites, but the descendants of Abraham. It's got a wife back of it. Go back to the beginning. Right back in the beginning in creation, God founded the kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, in, in the beginning there were blessings poured out on the citizens of the kingdom. But those first citizens rebelled. Uh, Adam and Eve tried to live apart from God and they, and when they did that they found that apart from God there was no life. They found that, that, that kind of a death like a monster rose out of the deep and wrapped its tentacles around every generation of humanity. And, and right back there in the beginning, right back in Genesis 3, verse 15, God identified the start of a conflict. He said to the deceiving serpent, Cursed are you. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Conflict that cut a dividing line through the first generations of people. Cain killed his brother, showing the the, the, the trait of the line of the serpent. Uh, in contrast, the other brother, Seth, he, his family line showed traits of faithfulness. Uh, the, the same conflict burst out among the sons of Noah. In the sons of Noah, there were abominable things done. And Noah speaks the curse of Genesis 3 over Canaan and his descendants. 
a warfare between the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. Now, now in its truth, in its reality, it's a spiritual conflict, but at, at this point in redemptive history, it's, it is um, displayed in biological families. The warfare pictured in the story of the Canaanites and the family of Abraham. But all the while, the beast of death is holding its ground. All the while, death is dragging into its jaws every person, every breath that's lived is stolen eventually by that great enemy. And so in Genesis 24, Abraham will not mingle his family with the Canaanites. And the back of that sounds that war cry of Genesis 3.15, the conflict between the offspring of the snake and the offspring of the woman. And then in Genesis 24, when Rebekah makes to leave her family, her family bless her in verse 16. The words that her family used to bless her show just how much the servant must have spoken to them about the promise. Because as they bless Rebekah, they quote the words of the Lord in, in blessing Abraham in Genesis 22, 17. What, what they say to her, their blessing, they are, sister, may you increase the thousands upon thousands, may your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. It's worth just slowing down on the second part of this for a moment. Literally what it says is, may your offspring, singular, one person in mind, may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. It's a promise about future victory. It's a promise that in an ancient city, the one who controls the gate controls the city. So this promise looks forward to someone who's going to be born into this family who will take charge of the city of his enemies. This is the offspring of the woman from Genesis 3.15 who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one who will deliver humanity from the, the, the bind of rebellion instigated by the evil one. This is the one who will win victory over all who stands against him. This is the one who is spoken of so often in the Old Testament. In, in Psalm 110, it speaks of him when it says um, that he will sit at the right hand of God until his enemies are put under his feet. Now, the Old Testament speaks of him so often, and then the New Testament tells us that his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus Christ died for our sins and has been raised to win our eternal happiness. And then it says this. It says, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The world is in conflict. There's been a spiritual war raging since Genesis 3. That onslaught of the serpent and that enmity which is encoded into the family of the snake and the family of the woman. And the damage of that warfare has been felt in every moment and every pain of suffering. And, and the casualties of this warfare are all of us. We're all casualties of it. It's as though kind of king death has held us in his city. And our place in his city is certified by our sin. And we were all locked up there until the Saviour was born. Until the Saviour was born, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who plunged himself into death, and he, he took that wicked tyrant and he beat him to a pulp. Jesus went to the grave and dethroned death as he rose on the other side, answering for our sin, breaking the stronghold and releasing all the captives. And all who follow him, 1 Corinthians 15 says, all who follow him 
We inherit the kingdom of God. We don't inherit the kingdom of death. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So when the Lord promised Abraham, your offspring will possess the gates of his enemies. When, when Rebecca's family blessed her and said, may your offspring possess the gates of his enemies, they are looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And Rebecca's increase to thousands upon thousands is a promise looking forward to all those descendants of Abraham, all those who share the faith of Abraham, that great multinational global people of God that we call the church. In this love story of Genesis 24, it can be our story, but only through allegiance to that one offspring of Rebecca. This is how 1 John 4 puts it. This is how God showed his love among us. God's great, unwavering commitment to do good. The steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases, never changes, never quits. This is how God has showed that love. That love that was inevitable after he promised. Like the ball thrown over the bridge that would not stop until it reached its destination. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. The offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Rebecca. Offspring of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. That we might live through him. The love of God is offered you in Jesus. And you are called, all of us called, to turn from our own way. And follow Jesus as your king. And receive his mercy. And obtain that certain hope of life beyond death. The promise of Genesis 24 grows and meets us in Jesus. As the promise meets us, like Abraham, we too are called to live under the promise. So what does that mean then for us? It doesn't mean we go and get wives for our children from Aram, but that wouldn't move on the promise for us, would it? No, our place in the story is where the promised offspring has come, the one who will possess the gate of his enemy. That now our point in the story, he has come and Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death, will not overcome it. He will control the place of his enemy the last enemy, which is death, and he will claim out of the kingdom of death all who come to him for life. And he builds his church. And he builds his church today by sending out his people to tell the world of what he has done. That's how the promise advances today. And so like Abraham, we too are to ponder the promise. And like Abraham, we too are to say, God really loves us. Us, not just me, but us, the whole of the church. All of those who are known and all of those who are not yet saved. God has loved the people since the foundation of the world. A people whose names are written in the book of life. A people who are his church. A people who are rescued from sin and death and will spend eternity in the imperishable bliss of God's presence. 
And Christ will build that church. And it's not going to fail. And it's not going to fall. Because God's love never stops and never changes and never quits and never wears out. We say God really loves us. So like Abraham, then we ponder that through. And God's going to do everything needed to keep his church. God's going to give everything needed to grow his church until the very end. We wrestle with that promise, pondering that promise, and that should drive all the other actions of our lives. Now, like Abraham, we too are to proceed on the basis of the promise. And like the servant, we are to act. We go as the Lord sent us, and our Lord has sent us. Sent us to all the world to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Because that's how Christ builds his church. But what does that mean for us? Like, it can be so general, can't it? Christ will build his church and we go. But what does it actually look like for each of us? Now, Abraham might have been tempted to squash the promise down to make it more manageable. But we can do that too, can't we? Squash the promise down, make it seem more manageable. There are so many ways we might do it. Maybe the way that we so often do it is we just don't do it. Just ignore the responsibility. Now, if Abraham had done that and said, God really loves us, God has promised that God will do everything that's needed, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing, he would not have been trusting the promise. Because he trusted the promise, he acted to advance it. Now, if we refuse to, if we kind of push away our responsibility to tell others, it could be that we're just not trusting the promise. But, but what does it look like for us? Well, one of the big things we see in Genesis 24 is that God knows what he is doing, doesn't he? God knows what he's doing. God brought the servant to the right city at the right time, and he brought Rebecca out to the world at exactly the right moment because God is in control of his promise. And Christ will build his church. But that doesn't mean we sit back and watch. God has put you where you are. And it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that you live where you live. It's not a mistake that you work where you work. It's not a mistake that you meet who you meet. Now God sends some of us to the other side of the world to tell people. God stirs some of us up to, to, to meet new people so we can speak to them of Jesus. But I think for most of us, he just wants us to open our eyes and see who he's put in front of us. God doesn't make mistakes. He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's so what do we do with that? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 says this. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. Nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So we aim at. That's how we advance the promise today. We set forth the truth Plainly, we don't twist it or manipulate it or cloak it or shadow it. We, we, we put it out. We clearly seek to tell others about Jesus. But we don't presume. Now, we are confident that Christ will build his church, but we don't presume an automatic impact on what we do. But the next verse says, if our gospel is veiled, how often we see that. We tell people and others don't see it. But I think the actions of Abraham's servant are helpful. He prays. Praise for the steadfast love of the Lord. Praise that God will do what he has promised. And, and his prayer, I think, is a great example of practically praying the promise. And, and we can pray in his pattern. We can pray prayers like this. We can say, God, you really love us. 
You really do. It's not just me. But the whole of your church, you love all your church, all those gathered in eternity around the throne of the Lamb. So please do what you have promised and build that church, grow that church. Don't let the church fade or fail, but add to the number of people until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And then we go to the practical bit, like the servants. And so, Lord, today, when I speak, my, when I speak with my friend or when I go to work or when I do the school work, Give me the opportunity to speak clearly about Jesus. Now, living the life of the promise doesn't stop with prayer, though. If we follow the example of the sermon, the next thing he does, he pauses. Watches for the love of God to be seen. And I wonder how much we do this. No, maybe it's just me, but the, the whole idea of telling others about Jesus can seem so overwhelming. Uh, it can maybe even, dare I say it, feel a bit pointless. The opportunities are so far and few between and we, we just see so little don't we but I wonder whether one of the reasons we see so little is that we don't wait and watch I wonder how often you just pause to stop and think over the day or over the week and look for how God's love has been seen I wonder how often we ask each other about this and the servant doesn't rush he watches and he waits to see if it's from the Lord and then then he praises Praises God that the prayer is answered. Praises the God that God is showing his steadfast love. But I think what is really helpful about his praising is that he doesn't praise God because God has shown him everything. He doesn't see the big picture. But all that a servant sees is another step on the way. The promise is still waiting for its fulfillment. There are so many twists and turns ahead. But what the servant does is he identifies a token of God's steadfast love. And the promise moves a little bit forward. And he deliberately stops and praises God for that. Now I just wonder, for those of us who are believers here this morning, why don't you pick one of these things? Uh, maybe one that pricks your conscience in some way. And just say, that's the thing that I'm going to take with me to, to work on, to pray upon this week. No, it, it might be praising God for his steadfast love. That might be what you want to take into this week. Maybe, maybe we need to confess that we're not very good at it. Ask him to help us to learn to praise him, remembering that, the, that it's wrestling with the promise that drives the other actions. It might be the perceived part, the moving towards others to speak of Jesus. Maybe that's the bit that terrifies us. Well, why not say that's the one you're going to take into this week ahead? Ask God to help. Talk to him about your fears. Talk with him about his steadfast love. Now what would it be for you? Which one of these will you take into the week ahead? This, um, this love story, the great steadfast love of God, his resolute commitment to bring blessing to his people, this love story is our story, can be our story through Jesus Christ. For all who trust in Jesus, we share this great promise. For all who trust in Jesus, we can say with Abraham, God really loves us. And the pattern of living in this love is example for us in this servant, in this adventure. We ponder, we proceed, we pray, we pause, we praise, and then we go again. We repeat, we go over and over again. We do it over and over again until, like Abraham, we die trusting the promise. Die trusting that God really loves us. And then in that moment, our faith becomes sight. 
And on that last day, when the, when the trumpet sounds, our, our, our mortality is clothed with immortality and our, our perishableness is clothed with the imperishable. And we rejoice in the victory of Christ who possesses the gate of his enemies. The last enemy is death. So we say, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go again. We go again. And it's not a flashy life, it's not a glamorous life. No, this servant, what does he see? He sees his master die and Isaac get married. But that's probably it for him. No, it's the same for us. We are too called to live trusting the love of God for his people. Christ will build his church. So we open our mouths and we speak. And we get it wrong, of course, and we're met with resistance. And we go again, and we go again. And that's what we're called to. And in our days, we may see a great revival, and we might not. In our days, Kingfisher may go on for a few more years, or it might not. But we have this resolution bound to our souls that Christ will build his church. So we go, and we pray, and we praise, and we, we do it again, and we do it again, and then. Last thing. Don't you love the fact that we're not told the name of this servant? He is nameless and forgotten. Nameless but instrumental in the purposes of God and not forgotten by his master. So we do it again and again and again until we finally take our place among the nameless and the forgotten of this world. But we die trusting the promise that God really loves us, trusting that we will never be forgotten by him as we take our place in that great final and named multitude around the throne of the Lamb. And so we go. Please take a moment, pick one of these five things, commit to pray for them. Our God in heaven, we praise you that your love is steadfast and faithful. Praise you that your love doesn't change, doesn't give up on us, doesn't quit. And the steadfast love that you have for us never ceases. And so we pray that you would convince us every day more deeply, more fully, of the great love that you have for us, the great love shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we trust your promise. May we trust your promise that you're never going to leave us or forsake us. But trust your promise that the Lord Jesus will build his church and that the gates of death will not overcome. And so would you help us to live in light of that promise, to wrestle it through, think it through, pray it through, to go and to look for how you're working in the world around us and give you thanks and praise. Lord, I pray you'd help us in this week ahead as we think on these things and pray about them. And please work your ways among us for the glory of your grace and our Lord Jesus Christ.